Well, yesterday I got a text message from Dave saying that he came down with sickness um, this, this weekend and um, he felt wisely that it was best to stay at home and, and recover. Um, and so I'm sure he would appreciate our continued prayers. Uh, with that said, today will be a little bit different. Um, we will pause our series on prayer this week and in place of that, I'd like to just offer a, a brief meditation on, on a passage of, um, from Mark chapter 6. And it won't be on the screen behind me, so you're welcome to open up your pew Bible. Um, this will be at the end of Mark chapter 6. Um, I should say it's, it's not totally disconnected from what we've been talking about. Um, in the very least, you'll get an extra week if you've been following along with the book that we've been reading, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. Uh, you'll get an extra week to catch up or get ahead um, or start reading if you haven't already. I want to share just briefly why this passage um, came to me as I was praying yesterday and just asking, Lord, what is it that, um, that you want me to share? this morning. And actually, I've, I've had the thought before, you know, man, if, if Dave were ever to call in sick, I think Mark chapter 6 would be a great, a great place. Um, I remember leading a, a Bible study with high schoolers on it several years ago. And so this, is, this has been like a couple of years that I've thought, yeah, Mark chapter 6 would be a great place to go to when Jesus comes to his disciples on the lake. And um, the, the interesting thing about that is that in this passage, there's a, a connection, what I see as a connection, to what we've talked about for the last two weeks. So we talked about Elijah in the wilderness, um, in, Exodus, in 1 Kings chapter 19. We've also talked about Moses um, in Exodus chapter 3 and Exodus chapter 33. Um, there's a connection to both of those passages in this one passage that we're going to read today. And so hopefully that will uncover here. Uh, we'll uncover that. Um, but I, ha I do have to say uh, this is um, uh, not polished in any way. And so I believe if this is helpful, um, uh, then, then take it. And I do believe that um, when we read the word of God, it goes out and it does not return empty. And this time is about the proclamation of his word. And so we want to honor that um, this morning. Well, a few years ago, Karis and Henry and I took a short two-day canoe trip down the Connecticut River. Not the whole thing, but just, you know, a little, little couple miles. And we did this with my brother Jeremy and his family. They had kayaks, and I had a borrowed canoe. And after staging our vehicles, we set out to beautiful weather and a gentle current that carried us around cornfield after cornfield in the river valley. We spent the night at our riverside campsite after campfires and swimming and a beautiful sunset. And then the next morning we set out on a wider, slower portion of the river that would require more paddling. 
A small storm during the night had blown in some clouds, and it wasn't long before Karis and Henry and I found ourselves headed into the wind in a flat-bottomed, keelless boat that was meant for calmer waters. When the wind would catch the side of our boat, it would turn us around or push us to the side of the river. And there were times when I found myself straining at the, oar, at the paddles just to keep us from losing our position and being turned around upriver. If the wind had been cons- consistently strong that day, there's probably no way that we would have made it to our destination and out of the river. I share that story with you because in the passage we'll look at today, we find the disciples straining at the oars in their boat, only to realize that their efforts are being countered by the wind, and they're actually not moving anywhere. It's in the middle of the night, and they're stuck in the middle of the lake, and they're utterly exhausted. It's at this point that Jesus sees and comes to his disciples. And in doing so, he reveals something about his identity. And he invites their trust in him. So let's pick up our passage um, in Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 45. And I'll tell you that um, prior to this um, was the feeding of the 5,000. And so this is very much connected to that particular passage. Um, I should say, too, just as an aside, I had one of the reasons why I love the the Gospel of Mark. I had a professor that that said, choose one Gospel and and know it well. Um, And so sometimes we can get lost in, like, the different accounts that we have. Um, One of the reasons that I love, or several of the reasons I love the Gospel of Mark is that it's, it's short. It's 16 chapters. You can read it in a matter of an hour and a half or two hours. Um, It's action-packed. Mark drives the action forward by constantly using the word immediately. There's an urgency to get the word out. And it explores this question of who is Jesus? Who is he really? The whole book hinges on Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ. That's after this passage that we'll read today. And finally, we get this beautiful picture of the disciples in process, right? As they struggle to understand who Jesus is and to put their trust in him. So let's pick up in in Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 45. We read, immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd, that is the crowd from the feeding of the 5,000. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. 
Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed with them into the boat, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Let's take a moment to pray together. Dear God, we thank you that we have the privilege of opening your word here as your people this morning. And Lord, I pray that that you would be at work in each one of our minds and in our hearts, that you would be opening our eyes to see and to recognize who you are, and that you would be opening our ears to hear your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, right away, with a little help from the surrounding context, we see that Jesus knows the value of rest. There's a time to breathe out in ministering to others, and there's a time to breathe in, to be filled in relationship with the Father. So we've already said this story takes place in the context of the feeding of the 5,000. The disciples have just come back from being sent off in groups of two to minister to the surrounding towns. They've come back together and they're exhausted. And Jesus says in verse 33, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Well, as they go, the crowds follow them. Jesus has compassion on the people and he feeds them. The disciples ask Jesus to send them away, but Jesus says, you give them something to eat. And we have this beautiful story where the food is broken, distributed, and the disciples pick up 12 basketfuls of food left over. But there's something that they're missing. (laughs) So after the 5,000 are fed and sent away, Verse 46 tells us that Jesus goes up on a mountainside to pray. This is a common practice, a pattern of life for Jesus. We often see him practicing solitude with the Father, and for various reasons. Whether in distress before his arrest at the Mount of Olives that Paul talked about a few weeks ago, or in grief over the beheading of his cousin John the Baptist, or in this case, after a hard day of work. Jesus is often found retreating to a quiet place alone to commune with the Father. There's a time to breathe out and a time to breathe in. Catholic priest and theologian Henry Nouwen has a wonderful essay titled Moving from Solitude to Community to Ministry, which I would highly recommend uh, to to any. Um, in, In it, he writes... Why is it so important that you are with God and God alone on the mountaintop? It's important because it's the place which you can listen to the voice of the one who calls you the beloved. Isn't it wonderful that our king models the value of rest? Listen to his voice. Well, after the 5,000 are fed and the disciples pick up the leftovers, Jesus makes his disciples get out into the boat 
and go on ahead of him. I don't think this is a demonstration of force, but this is Jesus knowing exactly the needs of his disciples. Jesus and the disciples are living in the broken and wearying bounds of this world. Jesus values rest, but he also wants to be rest for the disciples. To have rest no matter where they are or what they're facing in struggle, in trial, in times of not enough. Jesus is giving his disciples an opportunity to embrace himself as enough in a time when they're straining at the oars. So later that night, when Jesus is alone with the Father, we read that his, he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Wonder what it must have been like to see what was going on in that boat. It's early in the morning, shortly before dawn is what the NIV says, uh, says, but other translations tell us it's the fourth watch of the night, which is between 3 and 6 a.m. We've got a sense that the disciples have been out there for hours, battling the wind and going nowhere. Perhaps some of their frustrations are boiling over as they struggle against the wind, but Jesus is watching. He's not far off. And not only does the text tell us that he saw them, but he also went out to him, to them. The disciples need help. And it's here that we encounter a curious phrase. And what really kind of attracted to me, me to this passage, we read that Jesus went out to them walking on the lake, and he was about to pass them by. It sounds a bit comical. The disciples are straining at the oars and Jesus is just strolling by. Hey guys, do you need a hand? <laughs> just passing by. It's curious enough to cause us to pause and ask what's actually going on here? Why does the text tell us that Jesus was about to pass them by? I think this phrase actually has some roots in the Old Testament and connected to God's presence among his people. So two weeks ago, Dave preached about Moses' relationship with God from Exodus chapter 3 and 33. And in Exodus 33, Moses asks God to teach him his ways so that he might lead the Israelite people. And he asks to see God's glory. Lord, show me your glory. And in verse 19 of Exodus 33, the Lord says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. Last week, Dave preached about the prophet Elijah, who flees in fear from Jezebel to the Sinai Peninsula. After his needs are ministered to in the wilderness, the Lord says to Elijah in 1 Kings 19.11, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. The word pass by, then, 
indicates a theophany, which is a fancy way of saying an appearing of God. What Mark is communicating to us as we read his gospel is that this is the, the appearing of God himself. Passing by isn't God on his way out. It's God on his way in. It's not God leaving, but it's God coming. But the problem is the disciples don't recognize Jesus. Instead, they think they're seeing a ghost. Their earthly explanations are preventing them from clearly seeing the supernatural reality that's before them. And they miss that God himself has come into their presence. In short, they don't recognize Jesus because they're not looking for him. They're too focused on paddling against the wind to notice who's about to step into their boat. If we look at the surrounding text, who are the ones who actually recognize Jesus? It's the crowds. Mark 6, 32, when they were getting away to that solitary place and the crowds follow them and the feeding of the 5,000 happens, says, but many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And so too, afterward, just after the passage that we read, when they'd crossed over after the boat lands at Gennesaret, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. Everyone is recognizing Jesus except for the disciples. Do we have eyes on the lookout for where Jesus is passing us by? Are we on the lookout while we're straining at the oars for where Jesus is seeing us and coming to us? And will we welcome him into our boat? You know, the gospel of the world says, if I just put my head down and pull a little bit harder, if I just had more muscle, a bigger paddle, maybe an outboard motor, <laughs> then I'll make it through this storm. Salvation of self, right? The gospel of Jesus says, he sees you, he comes to you, he is with you, he is Lord over anything that can come against you. The wind, the desolate wilderness when there is not enough food. Salvation is in no one else. Not in myself, not in a clever plan, not in me straining at the oars. For there is no other name in heaven by which we can be saved. Every occupation. In every occupation, this is an, ex an experience that is common to all of us, even pastors, <laughs> that we find ourselves with the wind in our face straining at the oars. He sees you. Do you see him? Crossing the lake was supposed to be easy for the disciples. 
They knew this lake like no one else, having spent countless hours casting nets in the early morning hours. I imagine the conversation, come on guys, we're supposed to be good at this. What's gone wrong? What's interesting here is that Jesus allows the disciples to see their insufficiency even in their area of proficiency. Perhaps because the areas of proficiency for us are the very places where we're tempted to seek self-salvation. He sees you. Do you see him? Salvation is found in no other name but Jesus. We have to remember that this is not the first time that the, the disciples find themselves facing heavy winds in a boat with Jesus nearby. Just a few chapters earlier, in, at the end of Mark 4, we find that story where Jesus is sleeping in the stern of the boat while the disciples are furiously bailing water out. And they wake Jesus, don't you care if we drowned? And he issues the command, be still. The storm stops. And the disciples are left asking, who is this man? This question asked in this first incident is actually answered in the second. Take a look at Jesus' words to the disciples when just before he gets in the boat, he says, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Or more literally, take courage, I am no fear. These words are straight from Exodus chapter 3, where God reveals his name to Moses at the burning bush. I am who I am. Jesus is on a mission to reveal his true identity as the Son of God to his disciples. And yet, we read that they had not understood about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. What was it that the disciples missed with the loaves? If you recall, there were 12 baskets of leftover pieces. There are 12 disciples. They failed to see that the leftovers were actually God's abundant provision for them. The disciples failed to recognize Jesus. Jason Derushi writes, rather than recognizing that Jesus controlled creation, that Jesus was their satisfier and supply, they still failed to see him for who he was. This is a warning for the disciples and also a warning for us. Will we paddle with our heads up in anticipation of God's presence, even when buffeted by the winds of trial? Will we be on the lookout for God's abundant provision for us as he provided for the disciples at the feeding of the 5,000? Will we rest in the fact that Jesus is enough? He sees you. Do you see him? I love just the portrayal of the disciples throughout the whole book of Mark throughout the whole gospel. And you actually get this sense that Jesus is gently helping his disciples see who he is and why he has come. 
their two miraculous feedings. Disciples, you didn't get it the first time. (laughs) There are two calming of the storms. And Jesus heals a blind man partway, and then he heals a blind man all the way, right? And when Jesus does begin to talk about his earthly mission, he repeats it three times to the disciples. It's after that beautiful hinge point where Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. Then Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be, and, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Friends, to guard against our hardness of heart, We must never tire of reminding one another of the gospel of God's grace freely given to us through the cross of Jesus Christ. We must never tire of watching and waiting on the presence of God. And we must never tire of resting in his presence and hearing his voice, even in the midst of the storms that we experience in life. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which we will be saved. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this curious story. We thank you for the way that you see your disciples as they are straining at the oars on the lake. And Lord, you come to them. And so Lord, in whatever it is that we are struggling and straining, wherever we are straining this day, I pray that we would lift our heads up and that we would see and recognize the ways that you are providing for us, the ways that you are present with us, the ways that you are saying, Take courage. It is I. Do not fear. Lord, help us, we pray. Open our eyes that we may see and we may recognize where you are present and at work in our lives this day. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.